Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In 1666, England was in the middle of a virulent outbreak of plague when its capital city, London, suffered one of the worst fires in its long history. What a time to be alive, hey? Rebecca Redeal joins me today to talk about how Restoration England dealt with pandemic disease and man-made disasters and to see if we can learn anything that applies to the present day. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I'm very excited today because we're going to be talking about the early modern period, which is particularly interesting for me because... I don't know much about it. I have with me Rebecca Redeal, who is going to introduce herself. Uh, if you would, please, Rebecca. Sure. I'm Rebecca Redeal. Thank you for pronouncing my surname correctly. That's very kind. I am a historian, but I'm also a bit of a jack of all trades. So I organize history events, produce podcasts. That's a new thing. <laughs> I think everyone's been doing that since the pandemic. Which podcast? So I do one called Killing Time, which I host myself, and it's about kind of macabre moments in history. Basically, it starts with the death and then we unpack the history from there. But also I produce a true crime podcast, which looks at 1970s serial killers. It's very, very dark, but it's <laughs> um, it's interesting. It's hosted by a criminal psychologist. So we go into the psychology of the killers and unpack the social history. It's, um, yeah, very dark, but interesting. Yeah, it is all quite dark, yes. It sounds fascinating if you like that, but possibly not late night listening, perhaps. I don't well, know. you Maybe never know. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Thank you very much for that. So you've also written a book called 1666, Plague, War and Hellfire. Yes. And I thought it would be quite interesting to try to compare the times we're living in now with 1666, which, if you believe in numerology, <laughs> was a particularly portentous date for people. Could you just sort of explain what was happening from your perspective in, in that area? So we're in the restoration, six years into the restoration of Charles II. So he's a Stuart monarch. He's enjoyed a 
fairly nice honeymoon period with the English public. The Scottish had crowned him much earlier. But in any case, he enjoys this nice period. But then the country is hit by a few catastrophes, one of which is the Great Plague. We also know that the Great Fire of London happened during this time. And also less well known are the Anglo-Dutch Wars, which was a problem entirely of England's own making. And that itself has very dark links to the slave trade and the beginning of this kind of state-backed colonialism. But in any case, the insular story is this story of plague, I suppose, that started at around 1665. And it hit London after a period of, well, after being away for a couple of decades. So while people were aware of plague, it was endemic in the country. It was still kind of being on the realms of living memory for a lot of the young adults that were living and working in London. So it was a fresh fear for a lot of people. Mm, And of course, plagues have been around for a long time. There was a plague of Justinian, you know, the very earliest part of the Middle Ages, Mm post-Roman. And you had it through the medieval period as well. So it's sort of plagues have been with us for a long time. And of course, back then, and presumably in 1666, they didn't really have much in the way of medical intervention on the same way that we do? Or did they? Did they have a view of how to avoid this or how to reduce the spread? Or did they just sort of shrug and hope it didn't kill them? Well, they had a lot of things in terms of medical intervention. It's just a lot of it was based on a flawed understanding of medicine. So we're still in the time where people are um, understanding the human body, disease, illness, health as well in relation to the four humours, which goes right back to Galen and the ancient classical world. And within this belief, within this system of medicine, is the idea of good air and bad air. So bad air would be a miasma. So when a plague or a contagion arrives, it's believed that it can travel through air, which is not inaccurate, actually, in a lot of cases. But the actual specific smell is the thing that carries this contagion. So in order to combat that, people erect bonfires or they wear sweet smelling or strong smelling herbs. They have mini fires going in their own homes. So there are lots of different ways. There's also more kind of outlandish people that take advantage of fear and panic of a of an epidemic and try to flog, you know, basically snake oil to get rid of plague. There were reports of a special stone that had come over from France that all the physicians were trying to get their hands on. But in actual fact, and this is a kind of rough quote, he said that all it did was serve to send the victims to their graves a bit sooner. So there's lots of things out there, but it's flawed medicine. But in terms of public health, it feels a bit inaccurate to use the term public health in relation to the 17th century because it feels like a new thing. But it is, in essence, public health in terms of looking after people and keeping different sections of society safe. Not much has changed at all. And this is what's been really surprising to me during this particular pandemic is that we're still so reliant on isolation and quarantine and keeping people separate and people with money leaving places that are affected so that they can reduce the risk of themselves becoming infected. But also the consequence is that often people leaving places take that disease with them and it it travels. So there's lots of similarities that can be pointed out between the two and between all disease, to be honest. Were there denialists 
like there are clearly today, people that literally don't think it's true. And other people think it's not that bad. Do we have any records of people back then going, no, no such thing as the plague. It's all a conspiracy. They probably wouldn't have used those terms, but... You know what? No, I've not come across anything like that. There might be historians that have, and there might be historians that are working on it. But no, that's a really good question. If anything, it was the other way. People were making the plague even bigger than it was. So it wasn't just this disease that came around every now and then. It was God's judgment on people. Right. I Um, I thought that might come into that. Yes, that we deserve it because we've been bad in whatever way that might be for the particular person involved. And therefore, we're being punished. Therefore, we shouldn't do anything to avoid it because we'd be going against God's will. Yeah, I can see how that, especially in a very strongly religious environment, pre-scientific, arguably. I mean, quite frankly, even today, people are saying the same thing about COVID. They said the same thing about AIDS as well, of course, didn't they? It was a punishment on particular sectors of society. Yeah, and that's another kind of tangential link, actually, as well, is that when you start believing things are punishment or they are because wrong has been done or because people have not been as careful as you would be, that's when you start to get stigma and discrimination and xenophobia and also racism as well. Depending on the place, depending on the contagion, there is always, absolutely always, a section of society that's blamed for it. And we've, in recent memory, seen that, as you said, with AIDS to a horrific degree. Um, I was born in the 80s, so I was too young to appreciate the situation when it was going on. And I didn't have anybody that I knew that was going through that. But just, you know, as a historian and doing reading since, I don't know how these men coped with that situation during that time. But we also see similar things with the Great Plague and plagues in the 17th century. The poor are often blamed for basically just being poor (laughs) and spreading it around. And so, yeah, that's something that I think we always need to be mindful of whenever we have a, hopefully, touch wood, we don't have another pandemic for a while. But whenever we have an epidemic, I think we need to be mindful of the fact that as a human species, we tend to blame people. And it's not right, but it happens. And if we're wary and vigilant, we can maybe curb that. And I think that's why it's a good thing with different strains of COVID. They've actually not given them regionally specific or country specific names anymore because they know that that can trigger discrimination. Absolutely. I mean, it's extraordinary how similar, even though we like to think now is more sophisticated than the past. I actually think that that's probably only on the surface that you go a little beyond and basically you could transport the population today back into the 17th century or back into the 15th century, Mm. except for sort of things we know about technology and stuff or expectations of what would happen in our lives. There are attitudes and behaviors which would completely map to the way people behaved back then. One of the things I was going to ask you is those fantastic plague masks. Are they a real thing that doctors were going around with special masks on and sort of looking all gothic with big long noses? No, unfortunately they're not. I mean, they are, but they weren't at this time and in this place. There was something that was used on the continent. I mean, we see it still. If you've ever been to Venice, you can see these plague masks everywhere. It became a kind of caricature later on, a trope in um, the comedy scene, I suppose, in Italy. So yeah, these masks, they're not accurate to the place all the time. And there's nothing in the records. Right. So you wouldn't have had doctors wandering around in black cloaks with these 
crow-like masks on, even though it would have looked pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it would have looked so cool. I live in Chester in the northwest, and there's a medical history museum, which ironically was shut down. Well, its launch was kind of scuppered because of the pandemic. But their mascot is a plague doctor, and he wanders around Chester. He wanders around the walls. He, I think he's doing something for Valentine's night as well, which is quite funny. Because in a way, we make light of the plague. But how does it compare to COVID, for example, in terms of the death toll, the impact on people that survived it, their lives? Do we know what happened to the economy afterwards? You know, what, what happened? Well, what happened to the royal family? Were they blamed for it at all? Yeah. So the economy recovers because it hits mainly London and there are always people willing and able to move to London. The economy was mainly affected during this time period by the war that was going on with the Dutch and then also the Great Fire of London. Because if the poor are suffering during the 17th century, it doesn't really affect the economy as a whole, I don't suppose. But it's really hard to get yourself into the frame of mind where there are 500,000 people living in London, a big portion of that number leaves by June of 1665 because of the plague, but still 100,000 people die. Good grief. Um, I've lost people to COVID and during COVID, but it would be even more stark than that. It would be every single person will have known someone that has died or a whole family will have died and no one will have known who they are because there's no one left to remember them. It was ruthless and brutal and took so many people with it. The mortality rate for plague at this time is debated, but it was probably around 60 or 70%. Good God, that's extraordinary. Yeah, and also if you're in a small confined house, so if you've been shut up, that's what they called it at the time, so put into quarantine, obviously everyone within your home is at risk of getting plague. So. If you were lucky, you could have one person that has it and, you know, they've been isolated in a separate part of the home to the rest of the family. I think there's evidence that that was going on. There's a tract that was published in 1666 by a man called Thomas Clark, who writes about his experiences. And within that, he talks about the loneliness of being in isolation while his family had plague in their home. He also talks about having a lock, I think. I might be incorrect here. It's either a lock or a key. He asks for that to be delivered. And my assumption is that that is needed, maybe, you know, for security reasons, but also it could be to keep certain parts of the house separate. He lost children during his experience of plague. And he writes about how mothers and fathers aren't able to comfort their sons and daughters. And just to get yourself in that headspace where you're in the same home as somebody, they're having to be kept in a separate room and they are dying and they are your child. I just cannot get myself in that headspace. It's indescribable, really, to think of the pain that these people went through. But do we know, I mean, obviously on an individual basis, but from society, did society change after this? And drawing parallels to today, I personally think society is going to change quite a lot as a result of COVID. And we don't have nearly the mortality rate that the plague had. Is there evidence that society shifted and changed and that power structures changed? I think what we need to remember is that plague was a regular presence. And in the 17th century, there had been many outbreaks in England and in Scotland and on the continent, and they usually flowed around and followed one another. So it wasn't unusual. 
And the Great Plague, in inverted commas, of 1665 is probably only thought of as the Great Plague because it was the last plague in England. There had been a plague in 1603, which kind of proportionally, it's been argued, was probably more deadly than the 1665 outbreak. So there are things that may have changed if there had been another outbreak in terms of the understanding of the way it spread. There's a physician at the time called Nathaniel Hodges who stayed in London during 1665 and describes his experiences. And you can actually follow beat by beat as he's working through accepted knowledge and accepted remedies and realizing that actually this doesn't work, that doesn't work, this does work a little bit, that does work a bit more. And so perhaps if there had been another plague, there might have been a slight shift in the way that it was dealt with. There are other things that are quite subtle that I don't think we will find in the archive. And I've only started to realize this through experiencing the pandemic and having a daughter. She's 11. So the pandemic started when she was nine. And what I've noticed is that if we go out, she automatically keeps that two meter distance because it's become learned behavior now. Ah, yes, of course. Things like that we're not going to find in the archive because it would be so instinctive that it wouldn't even be written about. And I find that fascinating. Mm. I find it really fascinating. The fact that there is a whole generation of kids and young people whose life has been a huge formative part of their youth has been about the pandemic. So that has to make a mark. I think when you're older, perhaps not so much. I think things will change, but I think from looking at history, it's always quite depressing to see how quickly things go back to the way that they were as well. Yeah, there's always that possibility. But I found myself as somebody trying to deliver a package to me. And I said, you know, put it down over there, kind of keeping out of the way, you know, just mm-hmm. doesn't make sense. And they came towards me to give it to me. And I found myself backing away. It was sensible, quite frankly, to do that because you don't need to interact with somebody. What's the point? Yeah. But at the same time, you do lose a certain amount of social cohesion or social relationship even with a complete stranger who you know who's delivering something you don't want to I find myself not wanting to get into close proximity Mm -hmm. for jolly good reasons but when will I not have that reaction (laughs) how long will it take me to unlearn that will I ever feel completely comfortable when I really did feel particularly comfortable giving complete strangers at a party a hug or something to say hello I always felt that was a bit weird and, you know, impersonal, but overpersonal as well. Shaking hands now seems like an odd thing to do without washing your hands afterwards immediately. Yeah. But can I move on a little bit to the fire of London as well? Because society was reeling from the Great Plague, the last big plague in England. And then the fire starts. And of course, I learned about this at school. It's probably all nonsense. But did it start in Pudding Lane? <laughs> Yes, it did. And it won't be all nonsense because it's a staple. Every country has them. They're kind of key moments in the past that become part of the national story. And the Great Fire is definitely that. I've been listening to a podcast recently about the Salem witch trials in America. And I think that serves the same purpose in America as being this kind of key story that's about the history that shows a moment where you find the old moving into the new, or at least there's the perception of that. And I think the Great Fire is is definitely that. So yes, it started in Pudding Lane. Thomas Farriner's Bakehouse. Who started it within the family? We don't know for sure. It could have been him, might have been his daughter. But in any case, it doesn't really matter who started the fire because it, it happened. 
And it happened on a Sunday morning in the very early hours. So people were not around and probably sleeping a little bit heavier because, you know, it'd been a Saturday evening before. And it spread, it spread down Pudding Lane. There were initial attempts to kind of stop the fire, but that was tricky because London as today was a city that was made up of landlords and tenants. So to get permission to pull down a building, you'd have to speak to the landlord. And this is not a time where you have phones. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have the time to send a messenger out to find a landlord living in, I don't know, Yorkshire to ask if you can pull down a house. Mm. So that was tricky for the mayor. And he did have the power to pull down houses if he wanted to, but he didn't do it. And I can kind of understand that in a way, because there was no way to know that it would grow into such a huge fire. So it spread down Pudding Lane, made its way down to the Thames, Thames Street, kind of flowed all down Thames Street, where it just burned and burned and burned on, you know, all the combustible goods that were on that street, and then just raged and spread for four and a half days taking most of the big buildings in the city of London with it. But there were reports months later that there were certain parts of the city that were still smoking. So, Oh, right. Of course, these days, the fire brigade damp down buildings. You know, they pour a lot of water in it. And some people have said the house is partly burnt, but it's now very flooded. Um, yeah. But the fire brigade's job is to make sure the fire doesn't spread, not to preserve things in your house from flooding. But of course, they can pump mains water. Water's very heavy. You don't have hoses in the same way. Did they have a fire brigade or an equivalent, or was it more like a sort of a general militia? Yeah, it was more of a general approach. But they did have fire engines, kind of carts with a barrel and a pump on them, but they couldn't get them down the narrow streets. So actually, even if they had a modern fire brigade in London, I don't know how helpful they would have been mm -hmm. at this point in time, because they wouldn't have got down to the areas that they needed to get to because these streets were so narrow. So there were attempts. I mean, they had these hooks that they could pull buildings down. Basically, everything you've been told during school time in terms of how a fire could be put out is pretty much true. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When I was at school, I always thought, it's a bit mad to pull down a burning house. That sounds incredibly dangerous. But of course, no. You have to go ahead of the fire and pull down houses that are not yet burnt. Yes, to create a fire break. Yes, yes. And then somebody could go, well, you didn't even get up to my house and you pulled my house down. And then, of course, you've got issues of liability and expense and everything. But <laughs> Exactly. And that's why I have a bit of sympathy for the mayor. Um, I think I might be the only person because 
I wouldn't want that. I wouldn't want to be sued by a bunch of wealthy landlords. Mm. And again, he had no way of knowing, but he did run away kind of midway through and didn't reappear until afterwards. <laughs> but um, because of that, the control of the fire fell to Charles II and his brother. His brother was James, the Duke of York, who would later be James II. They hadn't done particularly well during the plague. They had left London. And I can understand why. I mean, why would you stay if you're the leader of your country? It makes sense for him to leave the city and leave people in charge of taking care of it during that time. What didn't necessarily make sense was the way that they behaved during the plague, which was to, first of all, go to Salisbury and basically bring the plague with them. There were accounts of various people on the peripheries of the court coming down with plague and people in Salisbury being told that they couldn't leave. The only people that could leave the city was the king and his entourage. So they were kind of stuck there with the plague that the royal court had brought with them. Then they went to Oxford and it was just basically party, party, party all the time. Right. But in any case, so they'd had this criticism because of the way they'd acted during the Great Plague. So the Great Fire was their chance to redeem themselves and... They made sure that there was a full write-up of their performance after the Great Fire had finished in the London Gazette so people could see how heroic the King and the Duke of York had been. Um, But you can't really do anything about a fire on this scale. You literally can't. I don't know, have you ever seen a big fire in reality? I haven't seen a massive fire. I've seen a house or a barn burning and they're monstrously terrifying. And that's not big by comparison with the Great Fire of London. Yeah. So when I was a kid, I grew up in a terrace house. You know, there's railway terrace houses that are always close to railways where the workers used to be. So it was one of them. Houses really close together. It wasn't It wasn't like, you know, 17th century London, but they are very close together houses. And at the end of our street, there was a huge warehouse that set alight when it must have been about seven or eight. Oh, wow. And an entire row of houses felt the force of this fire it was blown across and kind of licked the buildings and it was terrifying we thought you know we're going to have to evacuate our homes the people on the street closest to the fire did have to evacuate their homes you could feel the heat of that fire on your face you couldn't stop but stare at it as well and it's just such an uncontrollable thing they're quite beast-like aren't they fires in a way they kind of resemble mad creatures that you you just can't reason with or rationalise. And heat from even a reasonable-sized bonfire can be incredibly intense. But the whole of London burning with all that dry oak or wattle and daub, it must have shot hundreds of feet into the air at its height. Yeah, and that's what you find in the accounts as well. You find these descriptions, like Samuel Pepys, the diarist who was in London during the Great Plague and the Great Fire of London, He writes in exactly this way. He describes the fire as almost biblical. When it was going over one part, he describes it as kind of an arch or something from God. And he and John Evelyn, who also documented the Great Fire and the Great Plague, their descriptions are just so vivid about the heat of it all. Mm. Pepys talks about birds having their wings scorched off. And it's just like you cannot imagine an entire city ablaze. It's unfathomable. So it burnt itself out more or less, did it? Yeah, it burnt itself out. That's the way that it stopped. They created a couple of fire breaks, so they stopped it. Arguably, they stopped it going down the Strand and towards Whitehall 
it may not have gone that way anyway. So they made a fire break by the Fleet River, which was still an active river. Well, I say a river, it was more like a kind of swampy, stinking canal, but there was liquid there anyway. <laughs> right, some indescribably awful putrid liquid, but at least it won't burn. Yes. Yeah. You know, there were certain areas where arguably they may have stopped it a little bit, but overall, there's nothing you can do about a fire of that size. So what was the recovery process then? What happened afterwards? I mean, presuming there's a huge immediate clear up to deal with, which is thousands of tons of charred timbers, which are going to be falling all over the streets. So you're going to be having a massive job there and you don't have any heavy lifting equipment in the same way we do today. Mm -hmm. But once that was sort of more organized, you've got insurance, presumably, perhaps, I don't know. This is the most boring part of the Great Fire story is that this is where you get the birth of home insurance, which I won't go into because it's too boring. But yes, you do have that. Oh, wow. So what they did, which I think personally is one of the most forward-thinking aspects of the recovery procedure, was to set up a fire court, which would look at cases of tenants and landlords and assess who owned what, who had been given the tenancy to what, how big that space was what was owed, whether that person could give the money, whether they'd need to relinquish their tenancy. And they went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases and resolved them so quickly. And if they hadn't set up this fire court, it would have been a total mess. Because like today, no one person owns London. Everyone owns it in different ways. And that's complicated when large parts of it don't exist anymore. And, and if it's burnt down, you know, your, your reference to owning the corner of this bit or the hundred yards along this road, and if everything's burnt and got mixed up, how do you even know where your property is? Yes, it would be, I imagine, initially, but I think it wasn't such a big area. So it was the city of London. We think of London as being huge and it is huge now. We think of the metropolis. So the city of London is much smaller. And I think people would have found their way back and they did find their way back to the places where they lived and or worked. Some people set up small tents to open up shop over the debris of their old houses. The authorities said that this couldn't happen anymore, so that was stopped. But I think they did find their place. And I think if you live somewhere, you do kind of know what it feels like roughly. You know the size of your living room, don't you, really? Yes, I was just thinking that if everything was all higgledy-piggledy, and there were huge oak beams everywhere and partly burned, partly not. And, you know, exactly where the frontage of your building was. I suppose there might well be remains in the ground and things like that to yeah. sort of re- reconstruct it from. Did, did any streets get changed? Did the authorities take the opportunity to widen streets or was any sort of social you know, city development done on the remains as such? Yeah, so I think obviously everybody associates... Christopher Wren with this recovery of London. One of the things that I find quite funny is that literally within days of the Great Fire, all the polymaths in town were coming up with new plans for a city, (laughs) all trying to get them to the king first. And some of these plans are just ridiculous. One of them is just like lines from one side of a page to another. Some of them are great, but they would never work in reality because of this fact that No one owned London, certainly not the king. There was historic tension between the king and the capital, which is a whole other topic anyway. So it had to go back to roughly the same makeup as it had been before. 
But there were changes. So as you said, streets were widened. Businesses that could create fire were moved out of the kind of concentrated areas and further afield. It was stipulated that houses needed to be made of brick or stone. There was a little loophole here, though, because they could be just clad in brick or stone and still have lots of wood inside. So, yeah, there were changes. But there's an interesting study by a historian of cities and urban spaces, uh, Michael Hebert. And he, I might be wrong here, but his study has basically said that actually after the recovery in the 18th century, there were more fires than there had been before. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I don't know what that says about our neat and tidy narratives we have about history. but Well, quite frankly, I think they're usually bogus. I think we sort yeah. of fixate on things and think it never happened. But I think history has to be simplified for people to make it digestible at an earlier age or in a simpler context. Because, you know, nobody ever woke up one day and thought, oh, I'm not medieval, I'm Tudor now. It's only in hindsight we can see the transitions. And probably at the time, nothing changed, just as largely nothing changes these days. But you look back 50 years and you go, what happened to fax machines? (laughs) I had some business cards made and I realized I'd not received a fax in a decade, but I had a fax number on there. But I can remember having my first business card with my email address on it. And yet that is, is totally normal for people today. So things change, but only in hindsight, really, for us. They do. They do. And it's just, I mean, you chat to, I mean, I chat to my daughter and she's just astonished about how little, in her view, <laughs> I had as a child. Like, no <laughs> mobile phone until you were in your late teens. Like, how did you cope? <laughs> how did you meet people? It's like, well, we said we'll meet in town on Saturday and we caught a yes. bus into town or cycled into town, hung around to try to find our friends. And if they didn't turn up, never mind. We saw them at school on Monday and said, where were you? that's how it was there's no expectations of instant messaging um yes okay so 17th century in general so obviously we've talked a lot about these disasters and the king's response of fire and plague but are there other aspects of the 17th century that we should perhaps focus on as much as disasters i mean people love disasters because they're colorful and and terrifying But were there other innovations, other changes going on that perhaps were not quite as visually dramatic or lethal? Oh, I don't know, because I'm always drawn to the visually dramatic and the lethal ones for some strange reason. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, I always try to flag the Anglo-Dutch wars because no one knows anything about them. Mm. And they're important. But again, they kind of tap into a darker history. So I'll leave people to look into them themselves if they're interested. Um, Massive naval wars rooted in colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Innovations, lots of them, actually. The Royal Society was established. So when the plague was going on, none of them were looking into the Great Plague. You know, all the leading minds in the country were not looking into the Great Plague. They were looking into how to make ships that could do weird things. We've got the theatre as well. So the playhouses were reopened in 1660 by Charles II. There had been people performing during the 1650s and 1640s. It's a myth that there was no kind of culture during Cromwell. But the playhouses were reopened. And obviously, as a lot of people know, one of the most important things that changed was that women were allowed to go on the stage. So you had this flourishing of creativity from women that was allowed to be given expression in a public way for 
the first time in a lot of cases. And you had famous performers like Nell Gwynn, Elizabeth Barry that were on the stage as well, and famous writers like Afra Ben. Well, that could really be a whole other podcast, obviously, because that sounds like a very important thing to explore, but we haven't really got time to explore it here. I was quite interested in the idea of the Royal Society being set up, which, as I understand it, is a society about exploring science, as we would call it today. Is, is that right? Or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. They called it natural philosophy. So science, as we accept it, would not be a term that they would have used, but they called it natural philosophy. And they had their regular meetings, but they also had a publication called Transactions. And that's still going today. And um, you can access it all, actually. I think you can have a look and sift through. And I find it interesting that one of the first... I think it was actually the first transactions publication had in it, it was March 1665, a letter or almost like an opinion piece from somebody that had written in. And they were talking about how they should believe that witchcraft and witches are true. And also there was something about naval designs and navigation. And it just gives you a good impression, I think, of what was going on at the time. You have these very strange ideas from our 21st century lens of witchcraft being in a Royal Society publication and then, you know, other stuff as well. So quite a broad church of idea exploration in a way, but also the idea of publishing ideas for discussion by others is a really interesting process. Obviously, the process of peer review of scientific papers is essential for trying to dig down into the truth and double and triple quadruple check things. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like the beginnings of that, the beginnings of writing an idea down and then expecting a dialogue about it and sort of exploring as a community. It's a, it's a really interesting area of thought and, and how to think, perhaps. Yeah, and you can see the friction between certain people as well. So Thomas Hobbes wasn't really involved in the Royal Society, which is strange because he was one of the biggest figures, I suppose, you know, thinkers of that time. Mm. But you can see the back and forth. So they do book reviews of their peers and some of them are quite scathing and, and that kind of thing. So it's it's a really interesting thing to follow and watch, but it does build on things that have been happening earlier. It just kind of condenses it into one publication and one space. Really interesting. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about this particular period in history that fascinates you for us to finish with? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. I don't know. <laughs> um, female spies, that's one. There's a the great book by Nadine Ackerman about female spies from this time period. So Afra Ben was a spy and... I just think that's really interesting because we often think about women as being these passive figures up until the suffragettes, but obviously they really weren't. And they were doing things. And as I said before, they were on stage, but they were also engaged in espionage. So a spy and an actress, that sounds like the beginnings of a really quite interesting action adventure book or a movie. Yeah, well, she was a playwright. She wasn't an actress, but I do think there's a link there in terms of drama and being able to engage in espionage she was no good as a spy to be honest reading her letters but she gave it a go <laughs> <laughs> wonderful well that's a wonderful thing to to finish on if people want to find out more about your work is there any social media connections you would like to share with people yeah just to warn you i do a lot of things so i can be a bit annoying so you don't have to follow <laughs> but i'm on twitter <laughs> and i'm at rebecca Radil. wonderful thank you very much for sharing that um Just as a last thought, do you think there's anything we can learn today about the way they dealt with the plague and the Great Fire of London or any sort of upbeat message we can take away from what sounds like a pretty awful period in history? Um, Upbeat. Okay, I will be upbeat. (laughs) I will be upbeat. 
they recovered, we can recover. There you go. Is that um, insipid good. enough for you? I mean, it's a little, it's a high <laughs> level, but that's good. That'll do. That will do. <laughs> Thank you very much, Rebecca. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.